Welcome to Detoxicity. This is a podcast in which I try to change the narrative around masculinity a little bit and allow some progressive voices and some interesting voices, diverse voices, to come into the picture. My name is Mike Joseph. I host and produce this show, and I thank you very, very much for listening and for supporting from the bottom of my heart. It means a lot. Now, if you enjoy this podcast, I hope that you are subscribing to it. If you aren't, please press the subscribe button on wherever it is you're listening to it, and uh, that way you'll get episodes on demand when they come, uh, which is usually on Wednesday mornings. I also certainly ask that you uh, spread the word. Uh, Please rate the podcast on whatever platform you're using to listen. Um, Make sure you leave a comment if you have something nice to say or if you have something constructive to say. It doesn't all have to be nice. And by all means, tell your friends, tell anyone who you think might get some creative juice or inspirational juice or just would uh, you'd like to listen to this please spread the word uh, however you can i am on social media if you would like to follow me i am on instagram at detox pod guy uh, my twitter is on hiatus for a little bit it will come back but it is tis mike joseph feel free to follow me on either of those platforms there is also facebook.com slash detoxicity and if you have a comment you can email me detoxpod at gmail.com I am always on the lookout for new guests, so if you know somebody who you think has an interesting story to tell or something to add to the overall conversation around detoxifying masculinity, please reach out to me via any of those platforms, and certainly if you yourself would like to be a part of this podcast, please reach out, let me know. Once again, I thank you for listening. In this episode of Detoxicity, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Glenn Phillips, Glenn has been touring and releasing records for over three decades as a solo artist and as the frontman and principal songwriter for the band Toad Duet Sprocket. During our conversation, Glenn discusses how he felt as an incredibly sensitive young man. He extols the virtues of community-based singing and talks about making more of an effort to reach across the table, as it were, and find ways to relate to folks who may exist on different sides of the political spectrum from him. Glenn also reels off the names of several books that have helped him along his journey. You might want to keep a list. Uh, this is a book club in the making. Anyway, check out our conversation. I'm Glenn Phillips, a singer-songwriter for Toad the Wet Sprocket. also do a lot of touring solo and do community choir leading and waiting for the time when that is, once again, not a super spreader event. Sure. Sure. <laughs> I don't know if that's the best intro, I mean, but that's what I got. We can, I, I can <laughs> go forward from there. So I'm going to fanboy out a little bit, and hopefully this doesn't make you uncomfortable. <laughs> okay. Uh, I, I discovered you when I was in high school. Mm-hmm. So early 90s, I was watching Friday night videos or Saturday morning videos, and one of those things, and the video for All I Want came on, and I immediately felt in identification and attraction. I don't know what it was, but there was something that was like, I want to listen to these guys more and find out what they're about. And that was a long, long time ago. But here we are almost 30 years later having this conversation. And I'm wondering, the, the thing that I identified with was a sensitivity that I don't think I would have been able to articulate back then. Coming from where I come from culturally and even from a musical perspective, which was at the time hip hop and more sort of macho slash aggressive music. Mm -hmm. 
your lyrics and your presentation just came from a different place than what I was used to. And I'm curious if that was cultivated or if that was just who you were. Uh, You didn't really seem to have any artifice and you didn't seem to have any extra machismo. You weren't being hard. You were being very sensitive and intentional and open in a way that I think was uncommon and I think still is to a certain extent. Thank you. I, I don't know if anything was intentional other than we were trying to write songs that meant something to us and not trying to fit in too hard. I think we did one album. I think the Dulcinea album, we were definitely trying. We wanted things more muscular and sounding like we sounded live. But still, as far as content goes, I've always been more of a hippie. (laughs) And so we were writing from a perspective that was more gentle and more vulnerable than a lot of what was going on back in the day. And probably still now, but in a more conscious fashion. I I think early on there was a lot of lyric writing that was, I don't know, maybe getting away with things a little more. Just as long as it rhymed and sounded like I might know what it was about, I could get away with it. But yeah, I mean, my my upbringing was even, you know, my, my parents were both scientists. I had this kind of ethical Judaism as as a background, but then for the Actual, that was the ethical side of things, but for spirituality early on, my dad was taking me to those Zen Priory for meditation classes and was giving me books by Idris Shah. And so I had a little bit of a background in that from early on. And we weren't a sportsy family. I was talking with my brother today and we were reading lots of sci-fi as a family reading dune and the foundation trilogy and stranger in a strange land and our dinner conversation was always politics and religion so i think more than anything i always felt outside of the aggression that a lot of my other male friends had growing up i I found it easier to make friends with girls when i was a boy just because they were a little more gentle. I didn't get the guy things as much. Did that gentleness or, or that upbringing, which I think is a little unusual, and I, I don't know, it, look, I don't know how everybody lives in the world, so I don't know how unusual that is in the grand scheme of things, but did that cause any conflict growing up, whether internally or with people your age? No, I mean, I felt like an outsider a lot. I got beat up a few times, you know, who didn't? But I also just remember as like a little kid thinking that if everybody was feeling as much as I was feeling, I didn't understand how people functioned, if that makes sense. And I think every kid maybe goes through a little of that. I I felt like my feelings were so intense that I, I was like almost always having to to get in front of them or on top of them. I remember reading this book by Amy Koppelman called A Mouthful of Air. I think she's just made a film of it. It was the first description of depression and anxiety that I'd ever read that I felt explained how I felt inside for a lot of my childhood and even a lot of my adulthood. Where, I mean, in the same way, if you have real stomach pain, but you're talking to somebody you respect and care about, you're not going to let on, 
right? The conversation is more important than you expressing in any way that you're uncomfortable. And so you just kind of, kind of deal with and sublimate it. And I always, as a kid, especially felt emotionally, like everything was so intense for me that I was usually trying not to cry (laughs) or trying not to kind of lose it or, or, or be just overly emotional publicly. And so that's an isolating experience. And I, I think there's a degree to which a lot of people feel that, at least from time to time. There, there's a universality to that, that feeling like nobody knows what's happening inside me. It's mine right. alone. And everybody's carrying that same feeling. But I don't think there was a lot of good emotional caretaking, especially for boys. In an intellectual family, if I would be crying, I remember being told, go to your room until you can act like a human being. And this feeling like, I think I'm acting like a human being. Was that in response specifically uh, (laughs) to crying or was that in response to something else? Yeah, just being emotional, being in anything that was impassioned, right? And, And often for me, yeah, sadness or feeling of if things felt unjust or if I, I remember a lot of crying alone in my room as a kid. And and there's negative bias. Those are the things we remember. And I had a loving, good family. I mean, there wasn't anything abusive. I just had a whole lot of feeling all the time and didn't have skills. And it was kind of just the edge of a generation that became psychologically oriented and became oriented towards talking about vulnerability or talking about emotional intelligence and the idea that, especially if you live in a kind of insane society, seeing a professional about your mental health in the same way you should see your doctor before you have cancer. You check in, you do these things, you take care of yourself and you get tips on how to take care of yourself. And I feel like therapy in a culture as out of whack as ours is, like you get help before it's mm-hmm. dire, before the slitty wristies, like <laughs> oh, it's, <yes>. it's <laughs> and, and as a young man around the age of 16, 17, I met this guy, Robinson Eikenberry, who really changed my life where he was reading Robert Bly books <laughs> and have had this psychological vocabulary and this kind of philosophical vocabulary that really informed me and changed my life and changed my path to uh, these things that felt like home when I walked into them, but I hadn't known of their existence before and, or that it was okay to be that way, you know? So yeah, once again, that was, <laughs> was this a peer or, or was it someone older that kind of maybe had like a mentor type of, or, or, he was a year or two over. I mean, I've started using the word friend-tor often. I've never... I, I would like more elders as teacher. And my dad passed away when I was 27. So I haven't had that experience of watching my father age and being able to share kind of what it's like to become an older man, right? And so a lot of my biggest teachers are closer closer in age and increasingly more friends. I'm 50 now, more friends in their 60s. So they've gone through a little more than I have. But Robinson was just a couple of years older. His father had taken his life when Robinson was maybe 16. So he'd been catapulted into needing to figure out 
what was inside his mind, what was inside his soul, what was really important. He was always a mystic, but depending on how you want to look at it, he either had some kind of a psychological break or had a third eye opening in his early 20s. He had a context to kind of contain the things that he was perceiving that instead of being medicated and instead of being sent off to an institution, he actually was able to really develop a reckoning and a language around what he saw. And so he ended up being this weird kind of standalone sadhu of some kind. He produced uh, music for people and he did a few larger acts, but it was mostly local acts and people would find him like a woman who'd never written a song and at 40, she all of a sudden had these songs in her and she wanted to get them out. And he would be this creative midwife wow. for people and would meet people as long as they wanted to express themselves. He was there for them. Didn't matter good or bad. He would help them make the best album they could and, and invite their soul to unfold. And one of the things he would do to like amuse himself would be to go to a restaurant and look around and see a couple that he thought was interesting and anonymously pay for their meal and ask the wait person to suggest that they pay it forward to somebody else that they were drawn to anonymously. And sometimes he would check in with the, the people at the restaurants because they knew him and they'd go like, yeah, it went five <laughs> deep last night, man. Wow. <laughs> you know? He just had this delight in life and in people and this openness. And he also saw ghosts and angels, but when he first started seeing these things, he had the need to convince people that what he was seeing was true. And eventually he just kind of, it was in the background of how he saw the world, but he was just this incredibly loving, open person. And so I got to see this, my dearest friend who was in this state of a spiritual ecstasy most of the time. And also spiritual agony some of the time. His imagination could run away with him. And once again, having a skeptic's mind, I never know if that is about certain synaptic connections or, or neurotransmitter overloads. <laughs> you know, it can right. be those things. But for him to hold a framework to make it useful and to remain in service constantly to others was an incredibly inspiring thing. Most cultures hold people like that in a very, mm -hmm. very high regard. And so he was really influential. I think I would have been a heavily medicated muggle <laughs> if I had not met him. Well, it's, it's good to know that you're not a heavily medicated. That's a tongue twister, heavily medicated. <laughs> Do you find that because of the nature of, of the songs you write, that people come up to you almost as if you're a therapist, that you get a lot of people asking for advice or people opening up to you in a way that they, that maybe seems a little bit, wow, why are you opening up to me this much? Well, some, and I also have a habit of oversharing. I open up to other people as well. And so part of that's reciprocal. I think people feel safe around me to share. And it's strange when it's through music, because I've learned to guard myself better against this, to never want to turn anybody away. But I'm not 
a mental health professional and I'm not a minister and I'm not trained in these things. And so I, I've become better at filtering out like you need to find a therapy, but also trying to frame things for people a little bit and help them to go on. But I also notice if you do a little bit of that, then the doors are open. And so trying to find whatever the compassionate middle ground is in not refusing help if it's asked for, but also kind of protecting my own privacy and the sanctity of my life. So yeah, that can come in sometimes. And what's interesting too, is that the music, I think I write with a, a combination of specificity and ambiguity. I think emotional specificity, but situational ambiguity. So there are a lot of people who are shocked if they find out I'm not an evangelical Christian. Sure, I've okay. also had people... Who, yeah, well, I, I, I use a lot of sure. Christian imagery because that's the mythology of our culture. And so Judeo-Christian imagery is everywhere. And so that comes out because that's our language. And... At the same time, I've had somebody who was, I think it was the Dulcinea, that for them felt like it was entirely about coming out of the closet and being yourself. And so it makes me so happy <laughs> that someone who's had that experience could assume that I've shared that experience and a Christian could think I've shared that experience. Because I think I'm just trying to write about what it feels like to be a human being. And somebody told me the quote a while ago, the world is as we are, right? We see the world through the, our right. own personal perspective. We like to think that people are kind of like us. And so if you're able to speak a little bit universally, but still hit people deeply, I mean, I, I, I appreciate that. And it's been interesting in recent years to try to be more specific, which maybe makes things less broad, but I feel like can be more powerful. In the last eight years or so, I, I haven't had as much output, or at least as much public output, but I feel like um, I, I gained an appreciation beyond, how can I say this? I, I feel like I'd lost for a while what the soul of music was, or the soul of creation, what creating art was, and it became a job. And my job was getting smaller every year and I was resenting it and I would still make music I cared about, but I felt like I would just get, you know, kicked in the balls every album I put out and it was getting smaller and smaller and more difficult and more contentious in the band. And after my divorce, I found community singing and started doing that and leading that. I found my way into some plant medicine work and kind of really sacred music that was from an entirely different direction. And I think those things gave me back this sense of how healing and powerful music is and how utterly necessary it is. And so I started doing a lot more music that wasn't public at all. And I've been doing it five years or so now. And it's one of my favorite things in the universe. <laughs> and I've never advertised it. <laughs> and to do something that was not transactional at all mm. and was about the rest, just a reciprocity of spirit. And it was so good to get a basis in that. And it's helped me bring more meaning back into solo touring or band touring or these other things. But I had to do stuff that was really 
off the mat in order to regain a trust into to what the actual purpose of music was for me. And so it has not been a, a typical linear rock and roll <laughs> kind of progression. Which, <laughs> as you were talking, that posed two questions in my head. One, which you kind of answered, at any point, have you ever been like, fuck this music shit, I'm going to go and brew coffee? Or, or, I don't know, landscape or work at the post office? Yeah, it's a kind of a constant source of stress in my life is since I didn't buy a house back when it was feasible and with divorce, I haven't had a place. And so I'm living in Santa Barbara, which is just a, a bit of a treadmill financially. You know, the, the you're paying, I can be at the beach. It's sunny today and I'm five minutes I'm from the beach. Twice as jealous. And... <laughs> And I can go for a run on the beach and it's only 15 minutes to a trailhead to take me up the front range. And the beauty and the power and the accessibility of nature here is pretty unmatched. But you pay for that. And it's a bubble culturally. It's a very rich, safe, white environment. And, you know, and here, you know, white and Hispanic extremely, you know, it's... Right, you know, segregated. these separate worlds. Yeah, segregated is the word. And and so it has difficulties to it. And you can get very complacent here. Comfort is numbing. And it's a very comfortable place to be. At the same time, it's a place to be where the human misery index is often fairly low. And while that is rare and is not the world most people live in, I also feel it's the world that human beings are capable of living in and granting each other. It's just that at the moment, it seems to come with extreme wealth <laughs> at its edges. So it's, it, it, this place has its problems <laughs> and it also has its beauty. But to live here means entering the economy in a way where I can't necessarily just do the things that feed the soul. And so that was a long way of saying... I do think about living more simply. I lived in a yurt for like a year and a half after the divorce. And I liked being simple. I, I liked having fewer things or, or having things in storage or at friends' houses. And we don't need all the crap and we complication don't. we have. This is a nonsensical society. And so, yeah, I would love to be outside of that. But the other thing is right now, my job, I also feel like is very, as far as things that do make sense to me, the thing about making music is I'm lucky to have people who want to hear it. And it's a very direct exchange, meaning that what, there is a value that people will place on seeing me sing songs or seeing the band play. And we have a general understanding of what that level is. And depending on how many people show up, that's my living. There isn't like mailbox money and residual stuff coming in. I haven't had a placement, you know, film or TV in whatever it is, 13 years. So... I get paid depending on how much I work and on how much people value my music. And there's something very clean about that. It's not an hourly wage. I can't leave it when I go home, but I can work harder or less hard and I can do things and I can use the band tour to 
to essentially pay for doing things right. like community song leading. And stepping into that world has been interesting. It's a very, God, it's a beautiful, the, the collection of song leaders from around this country and even around the world are people who are probably ridiculously underpaid for the most part and are, are they're doing it for the spirit and the service and the, the joy of bringing music to people. So the community singing world is, it kind of came out of natural voice choirs in England. It was just simply the act of having a choir where instead of having to have like the perfect operatic trained voice, anyone was welcome. Or even if not anyone, at least you didn't have to sing like anybody other than yourself. So that came into the States where, I guess the easiest way to describe it, are you familiar with Kirtan at all? So Kirtan is uh, these old, there's old Sanskrit, you know, 3,000, 1,000 to 3,000 year old Sanskrit. It's things like Om Mane Padme Om. Simple, repetitive, mostly saying like, Rama, yes, Rama, <laughs> or, you know, something similar. These really simple things. You'll hear them in like a yoga class and they're often sung in a group. So you'll have a room and you just sing this song for maybe 15 minutes. They're very short and they'll kind of rise and fall in intensity. Or probably if you grew up in church, you know, there's the longer form songs or there's the ones that are just right. like, it's kind of a verse and a chorus. They're like really short and you repeat them, but you get deeper and deeper into them. And so there are a lot of songs that are, you know, maybe two lines long, but they'll have two counter melodies on top of them because non-trained singers, it's easier to sing a counter melody if you're not musically fluent than it is to sing a harmony. Harmonies tend to confuse non-musicians. And so it's songs that are designed at their root to be quick to learn, easy to sing, and to be just challenging enough that your brain is woken up. And so in an evening of community singing, it'll be like an hour and a half and we'll maybe do 10 songs. And so they're quick teaches for new people. And then you sing this simple repetitive thing for maybe five minutes and you just, you go deep. And, you know, there's a certain amount of cultural appropriation, sure. <laughs> usually with, you know, hopefully with a little proper research and credit where credit is due, but trying to even figure out like which cultures are more sensitive to appropriation. You know, Hinduism tends to often have the idea that if you're singing something, you know, if you're singing Loka Samasta Sukhino Bhavantu, right? May, may all beings be safe and happy, right? It's always good to sing that. So you sure. just go ahead and sing that. And there are other cultures who are much more, you know, I don't sing any indigenous American songs because I haven't had permission to sing any indigenous right. American, North American songs. There are some things from South or Central America that I may sing uh, or songs in Spanish that I wrote or not that I can speak Spanish well at all, but I did. But, or uh, there's uh, an Oshun song for the Orisha Oshun and she's the goddess of sweet flowing waters and she's the youngest most generous and and singing to Oshun feels justifiable to me and so occasional gospel song there I for a bit I sang spirituals and then I stopped I, I felt that sure, I, I didn't have the right to so it's a kind of constant asking of like 
whose tradition is this? And if you ask anyone in that tradition, Absolutely. you're going to get different answers as to whether it's okay or what degree of attribution you have to give. So th there's a constant kind of trying to mark what's okay, what's not okay. And, and then also what do people need? And they need these songs to sing. And so there are a lot of these songwriters, you know, that, so we'll be singing you know, poems of Thich Nhat Hanh, you know, or, and, and so it's, it's this wide ranging selection of material, but it ends up having this, you know, it's a little bit perhaps Unitarian, but not even that deep. I get it. Yeah. If that makes sense. And there's a lot of people who show up who went to church as a kid and they remember the effect of singing uplifting songs together and they miss it and they want mm -hmm. that, but they don't want dogma surrounding it, but they want experiences that are bringing them into presence and the bringing them into the now. And they don't want to have to swallow a whole lot of other stuff to do that. And it's amazing. I, I, and for me, once again, these things that you find and it feels like, Oh, I've been searching for this thing for 20 years. I've been talking about non-performative music wanting to do things where instead of being in front of an audience that it's something we do together and create together and that it's accessible to anyone and i found that already there were all these you know barbara mcafee and and lawrence cole thank god for lawrence cole like and all these incredible and lisa littlebird who introduced me to this work these song leaders who were creating that experience already and that there was this rich library of music available to be doing this with. And so, yeah, I, I, I absolutely love this work and I have generally been quiet about it because I wanted to, I don't know, develop skill with it or even not pollute it by turning it into something where I was doing any kind of promotion. And I think I was lucky enough that I had other other things to do that I could just kind of hold it close to the thing. chest and have it be yeah. word of mouth for a long time. But I also have noticed that when new people are introduced to it, you know, there's a handful of people. It's like, this is crazy hippie shit. I'll see you later. A uh, handful of people who are like, I've been looking for this my entire life. And then an even smaller handful. And for me, the really important handful is the people who hear this and are musically adept and go, I've been looking for this and I need to start leading. I need to start doing this. And I feel like even with doing it kind of halfway secretly in Santa Barbara, you know, there's like at least three other people who are now awesome. doing song leading, you know? And, and so I'm, I'm ready to take it kind of on the road because I want to introduce more people to it because I don't think you can have too much of people singing together and of the many things that this culture lacks. And part of it is technology, but part of it is also, honestly, the idea of, I don't know, American individualism or something in our own crazy history, right? Yeah where we don't sing together unless it's in church. We don't have, you know, if you go to a bar in the States, if you go to a bar anywhere else in the world, someone can start singing a song <laughs> that's not Sweet Caroline and everybody else in the we'll bar in. will start singing along. Yeah, the flamenco tradition, like everyone in Spain knows those songs, right? And you go, or, or Fado, or you go to Brazil and you go to Bahia 
And like all these bands wandering around town, they're all playing like the same 10 songs. And everyone knows every one of those songs. And you still stop, you still dance, you still sing. Like it's culturally owned. And you go to New Orleans and you get that there, right? There are pockets in the United States where there is a shared musical heritage that's not recorded, that's not performative, that's actually inclusive. For me, I feel like that is the central nutrients of belonging in the same way there's like the pyramid of nutrition, (laughs) not that it's entirely accurate, but in our hierarchy of communal needs, that there, there is, you know, somebody talked about the four pillars of storytelling, silence, movement, and song like that. And I would add food to that, right? The things we do together as cultures that every culture that has ever existed has always done, Mm -hmm. we don't do anymore. We get our storytelling on the television. We do our dancing in nightclubs trying to get laid. We sing along with pre-recorded music or we go to concerts, which is close, but it's not the same as owning a song together and creating the song together. There's this focal point of the performer and the spectacle of that. And I mean, the best moments I have ever had musically have been in song circles or in yurts, <laughs> you know. And, Be a you hippie. Know. So I'm a hippie. And once again, some people aren't turned on by this, but I'm more turned on by this than I am by just about anything else. And I think as as we get more frayed as a culture and more contentious and that you know, it's not, and it's not just left and right eating each other alive. Mm-hmm. The left is eating the left and the right is eating the right. Like we're in a weird place and it is harder to hate or judge people when you sing with them. And, <laughs> and for me, there's an element of coming back to common ground and if you see somebody across from you, you've disagreed with or think is, you know, weird in whatever way, and you just see them being overcome in song with, with feeling, with thought, with their own humanity uh, and vulnerability, it's like, okay, uh, you're going to be more willing to reach out through your difference to that person. And I noted for myself during 2020, I got to a point of oversaturating my own judgment and rage to a point where I didn't feel like I could function anymore. And I had become what I hated. And I was so angry all the time that I wasn't of much use to anybody. And then I realized I wasn't going to change how anybody thought. So I had to open my heart a lot wider than I thought it could open in order to you know, I, the turning point for me, honestly, was going, my girlfriend and I walked into a grocery store and this woman in her 60s walked out. You could, and she gave us, like, her eyes were so beautiful. She had her mask on, but her eyes were, like, clearly, like, loving and smiling at us. And she had on a Make America Great red mask. And I just <laughs> wanted to yell at her. And, and it was this thing of, like, okay, I'm the hateful, judgmental one now. And I know I disagree with her really strongly about some incredibly important things. And she's the one smiling at me with these beautific eyes and opening her heart. And 
I'm stepping out of a Prius. She knows I'm a libtard. Like, right? And, and so, and, you know, and, and just this feeling of like, God damn it, I got to be bigger. If she can be bigger, I can be bigger. And, and so, and I'm still trying to figure out what that means and what are the points yeah. where your rage is justified and what are the points where, where you have to speak truth yeah, to I power. Mean, and you do. That's, um, that's sort but of But I mean, where... there's this... The thing that I struggle with often in with regards to people who are who don't align with me politically is that sometimes, many times, it's my existence that's being called into question. And I, I feel like I've reached a point yeah. where I can't have a a discussion, a, a a an unemotional discussion with someone who has questions about my existence, whether it's, you know, color of my skin or sexual orientation or whatever it is, it, it's just very hard for me to sort of reach across yeah. that, you know, re- reach across the table as it were and, and see them with anything but eyes that are like bursting in flames. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And it's at the end of that, like, and what I have trouble understanding, like Dan Savage describes it as like the conservative, like a lack of moral imagination, right? If the first time you were able to think of gay people with compassion is because you had to choose between access to your child or being a bigot, right? And you go like, ah, I guess I don't want to lose my kids. So I'm going to open my heart a little. And the part that's hard to understand is why wouldn't you have already done that? Or did you need to do that? It's the lack of imagination, lack of empathy. You know, once again, like we moved into our house or the place we're renting right now and right across the street from us was this blue lives matter sign. And like, I just immediately went into a rageful tirade. You know, it's like it, because for me, blue lives matter is, sticking your fingers in your ear and saying, I, I refuse to hear your pain. I refuse to hear your story by denying that right. black lives matter. Blue lives are actually protected by law. There are specific laws that if you <laughs> shoot a cop, you get a harsher sentence. And so it's literally enshrined yes. in law that blue lives matter. There's no debate here. There's no question here. And there's no equivalency in all lives matter. There's no equivalency. And it's such a, to me, a galling lack of ability to listen and put aside your own personal struggles for half a second mm-hmm. to even try to understand someone else's. But I also know that when my girlfriend tells me there are certain subjects we get into, our deepest emotional, like, you know, conflicts, right? These things that are our work together. We know we're in the right, how can I say this? We know we're in the right relationship because our work appears to be the deepest soul work about our deepest insecurities, as opposed to just being shitty to each other or wondering if somebody's hot or somewhere, right? Like, I, I come down to these basic feelings. Do I belong here? Am I a, a good person? Can I give? And when we're talking about this stuff, I will jump to defensiveness sometimes. And when she calls me on my defensiveness, it's the worst. That, like I get, I totally double down on it and it hurts her. And there we are in our, our thing that we go into. And 
if I can't hear from the person I live, the person I sleep with, and I've chosen as my partner, if I can't hear some criticism from her, it also helps me understand how hard it can be if you're that people are, which which doesn't sure. make it right. It doesn't make it okay even for half a second, but. I'm not going to brutalize people into opening up. And the, the times where I've actually been able to get people to step back from the knee-jerk reaction is when I've been slow enough and kind enough and hand-holding enough to be able to hear them and hear that they're worried about their place in the world and that they're insecure about where they are. And, and like you know, to get right. There's the, the quote about how the loss of privilege feels like injustice. Yeah. yeah. Right. Cause you're used to it. We acclimate and, and if people are scared, everybody's scared of losing their place mm -hmm. right now. Right. Things aren't stable and to kind of go, okay, so your, your privilege, you're, you've taken it for, you know, the difference between, for me, privilege and entitlement is that privilege is something that is, and entitlement is something unexamined that you think you deserve, or even sure. examined, worse yet, that you think you deserve, that you actually see how unfair it is, but you actually think you're deserving of it. But privilege happens. You're born into situations. You live in situations. You have access that other people don't depending on any number of things. And privilege exists. Entitlement is, I think, a choice. And you can step down, you can give up privileges, but it's very hard for people to give up privilege, right? And this question of, well, if I give up my privilege, is anyone else really using it? Or am I just sacrificing for the sake of sacrificing? Yeah. And that's a yeah. long and nuanced debate, right? And there are points where I think people who look like me are going to have to give up a lot and it's going to be hard, but do you give up your education? Education is your a privilege. Education, do you right. give up your education? You can't give up your education. Right. It's in, embedded in your soul. It's embedded in your, your language and your knowledge base. And so there are also privileges that are more or less fungible than others. Right. And so back to the blue lives matter thing it's like oh god i really want to put up a rainbow flag and i really i want to get and our neighbors down below had up you know they put facing these people yards yeah. the, you know the yard sign of all are yes. welcome and you know <laughs> love is love and do i want to go to battle or am i just going to see when that dude's outside and go introduce myself and talk to him and i ended up doing that and you know military background from virginia like we're really different. And says, if you want to go fishing on my boat sometime, you know, it's like, and, and just this, like, we're clearly from so much else. We're doing yoga in our yard and he's seeing us do sure. yoga. We're, sure. We know where we stand on these things. And it's this question of like, am I going to show him something by being a good neighbor? Or am I going to show him more by getting in an argument that he doesn't want to hear? You do a good neighbor. Someone could take being a good neighbor as kind of being a patsy, and someone could take being yeah. confrontational the the incorrect way as well. So it, you kind of don't know whether the soft approach or the hard approach is going to work. How can I say this? There's nobody close to me who was full on MAGA. You know, there's one guy in a, a wider local circle of who kind of went QAnon, and 
the anti-vax world has been more interesting for me because within my hippie world or alternative health, you know, yoga world, mm-hmm. all these places, there's a lot of anti-vax sentiment. And my best friend is libertarian, which is its own interesting combination of things. But I'm one of the only libertards right. to use the awful term, you know, it's the joke. It's offensive in so many ways. But I'm one of the only people, like, you know, like, I have friends for whom these conversations, you know, especially in terms of anti-vax, societal trust, you know, just the concept of you have your own personal liberty, but these are conversations about public health. Mm -hmm. And they fall into a different realm of mutual care for each other, talking about disinformation. I've had to develop the ability to have respectful conversations through those things more. And I developed a lot of those skills back in the day with Toad, just in talking with evangelicals who assumed I was part of that club and learning how to disagree really strongly while also finding some common humanity. That's a skill that I'm better at is being a good neighbor first and then having hard conversations later. And they've had enough experience of liberals. I won't use that offensive term anymore. You can beep it out for the rest of it. If you want to beep it, I'm good with you beeping it. It's offensive, but it's their term, not mine. doesn't mean I can use it. Anyway, there's this, for me, what I felt is bad, like the skill that I keep trying to develop. And it's the skill that, you know, the more I listen to like, you know, Tara Mm -hmm. Brach or other, do you, do you, do you know her at all? B-R-A-C-H. She's an amazing Buddhist teacher, really got me through COVID. <laughs> I'm still getting me through COVID. She's a, but you know, the, the sin of bad othering, she talks about bad othering, assuming that other people are terrible people, even if they believe things you think are terrible. How right. do you stand up for justice without demonizing people? And in my own skill set, I find that when I get angry, I get stupid. And when I argue, I get stupid and I don't help my cause. I I forget salient details. And then when I take that route of, I'm going to get to know this person. I'm going to ask this person what they're concerned about, what they're scared of, what they care about, what they're worried about, where, you know, if it's something like, you know, vaccines, like how they lost their trust. Because most of these people lost their trust at great expense, right? I have a friend, you know, his wife basically like within a couple months just dropped dead. Doctors couldn't help. I get why he doesn't trust doctors. His life was ruined. And and you can argue, hey, medicine is imperfect and everyone dies. But I understand why he doesn't have trust. I understand why other people I care for deeply don't have trust. I, I can definitely see how that works. Yeah. And and those are all over, right? I mean, you know, yeah. we got Tuskegee, we got, yeah. you know, in, in Africa, we have the AIDS crisis. There are countless reasons why people don't trust. And then the question for me is, okay, so your trust is floating. <laughs> why did you put it in Joe Rogan? Like, come on. Like, he doesn't deserve your trust. Brett yeah, Weinstein it's... does not deserve your trust. Like Brett Weinstein is one thing that yeah no please like yeah and and that's where I can at least be funny about it but I can I 
and, and then we can have a laugh about it and talk about that. But it's like me going online, even in the last week, wanting to post stuff and thinking I'm not going to make anything better. I already lost half my audience during my live casts that I was doing during, during COVID because I was enraged and I spoke out about it and I lost a lot of people who I know I will never reach. And I lost a lot of other people whom if I'd kept a slightly higher tone that I wouldn't have lost. And so like, for me, it's that matter of even if I'm not going to change anybody's views, it's very hard to do that for them to remember that there's a couple of people like me in the world who they think are actually pretty good guys. And that the story they're being told about how evil we are and this whole completely falsified agenda. Yeah. Like, I think that guy actually wants the best for everybody. And you're up against people who often don't want the best for everybody, right? Who, who are just flat out racist, homophobic, misogynist turds. (laughs) And, And then there are a lot of people who are just simply raised in that culture and haven't examined it. And if they're not insulted and turned away and offended, have a chance of opening up a little and not changing their whole orientation. And I do think actually we need conservatives, we need liberals, we need balances of opinion. We need a a spectrum of, of intelligent viewpoints. And if the left devolves into total correctness policing, we're fascists. And if the right devolves into the depths of ultra-fundamentalist, racist misogyny, they're fascists. <laughs> and, and so we're having to keep a more loving tone to anything, even when you're talking about injustice, even when you're talking about the worst of the worst. Like, it, it, <laughs> it's more of an art than it's ever been before. But once we dehumanize those who think differently than us, then we're, I don't think we have a chance. We do. And I do think we need fighters, but we also need bridge builders. It it takes both. And I've noticed I'm shitty in a fight. Uh, I'm better. I'm good at bridge building. And so it's also like kind of knowing where you're useful and making an effort to, without like losing my moral standing and what I feel to be true to also, you know, I don't want to be the patsy. I don't want to be an apologist, but I feel like where I can be not quite an apologist, but say, these are all human people. These are all people with big feelings. And the one thing you can't argue with is how somebody feels. You can argue with all the narratives around it, but you can't argue with how they feel. And so And when you tell people that their feelings are not allowed, that makes sense. They'll stop listening to you immediately. And when you, or that their feelings aren't real or their experience isn't real, because frankly, all we have is our experience, right? And that's a way of canceling out their humanity. And so there's a little listening, which can be incredibly frustrating, especially if people are seeing crazy, hateful things. And I started, I, I tried for a while. I, at some point in my live streams, I said, if there's any like conservatives still listening to this, can you 
can we like have a phone call and you tell me what you care about and what you're concerned about? And what I did find is that with almost all of them, they were really concerned about security for their family, for their livelihood. They were scared of like the safety of their life and, you know, that it might be taken away or that people might be hurt. And they had this strong sense of like, you know, justice. And, and I also felt like we bumped up quickly against axiomatic beliefs about what the facts were in the world sure. that were so divergent that it was really hard to continue talking. But to simply even be able to go like, okay, you know what? I'm seeing some of this doesn't feel logical. Some of this feels logical. I see that you have a lot of heart. I see you care about the people around you and your family and your community. And there are these weird you know, statistics like of conservatives giving more to charities, right? Partially that's because a lot of them are embedded in churches and there's more church going. But And I've had that experience overall. You go to the, the southern states and there's all this embedded racism and misogyny and, and at the same time people it's will so give you the shirt yeah, off their back yeah. they will yank your car out of it it's so complicated and, and so to simply have that conversation be able to go wow we are dealing at some point with a set of facts that's really different that i don't know if we're going to agree on but at least what i can see and hopefully you see with me is that if we take out this difference in facts we're actually both really concerned for our community and the people we love, and that we want a fair playing field. I happen to think affirmative action makes right. for a fairer playing right. field. You right. think it's racism, <laughs> you know, but we're both saying right. we both want the fair playing field. And, and, and there are points where you can push this and, and find these disingenuous edges. And I, I have this, you know, with the anti-abortion world is like, if you want to save the baby, you know, there was this pilot program in Colorado where they were offering, and once again, this is controversial in some circles too. They were offering long-term like Norplant birth control to, to low-income women. And so, and there are other people that will say, and there are people who will mm -hmm. say rightly, is this eugenics within right. the poor community? Are you just, you know, there's a whole debate there. So I'm going to lay that debate aside for one second, or I'm just going to lay it, this debate aside to say they did this program for a year in Colorado, and I believe it took abortion rates down like 42% and took unwanted pregnancies down by something like 46%, just free available long-term birth control. And if you were an anti-abortion activist... You would think that that would be, it's like the single most effective, you know, anti-abortion thing ever done, right? And it was cost benefit because the overall, the lack of social services money, you know, the money that would have gone into the adoptions and the kids on welfare. And it was like, hey, that there's this, it actually paid for itself. And this is a privately funded study. And the Republicans in the state of Colorado wouldn't make it permanent because they thought it sent the wrong message about premarital sex or, and sex out of, and and they would rather that people didn't enjoy premarital sex than that there were these abortions so for me that that like it's in these things where we have common ground right where it's like okay if you want to stop abortion you stop poverty 
and you increase education and accessibility to medical care. Those are the ways in which you, you take that down. And you want to stop drug use, you stop poverty. You stop hopelessness. Yep. You let people have yep. lives with purpose and create things aside from McJobs. You, you create a society where giving back to society might actually give you enough to, to eat and live a life of dignity. These are the ways you fight these things. But when it comes down to that, like there's such a punitive nature of like, nope, can't have people enjoying sex. Right. Can't right. have people not getting punished. Right. It's being like poor. destinations the <laughs> That's same, where but I then go. to those destinations are very, very, very different. Yeah. But sure. at least I'm trying to understand how those maps are and then you can have a conversation and I still get curious of, okay, so when these maps are different, like where is our, what's that line where we stop having common ground? What's the point at which we stop being able to have a, to have a conversation? And it's a trip. It's a yeah, trip. it trips me I'm out. Conscious of time. Out. I do want to ask two quick questions of you though. One as a relatively newly yeah, yeah. minted 50 year old, were there any revelations? Was there any fear? <laughs> was was there any uh, trepidation? I mean, yeah. I, I constantly worry that, you know, especially living here, that I will either have a home against, uh, like a home that I don't have to worry about getting kicked out of someday or the rent getting too high. There's this feeling of like, I have this choice between having anything left for retirement or having a more permanent home. And that those are mutually exclusive given the economics of my life and the place I'd, I'd like to live, that I was born in, that my communities. But I also have this feeling because my dad died at, at 59 that I'm, I'm going to die in, you know, at this point, eight years. You know, I'm almost 51. And this feeling of like my father's mortality is my mortality. And so this incredible stress. And, you know, it, it doesn't for out most people. This, none of this has to make sense. But... <laughs> But this weird, like, economic panic combined with a feeling that I've only got 10 years, so I should just have some fun. And behind that, also this feeling like, and, you know, in 10 years, man, we're going to be climate refugees. And in four years, we're going to be fascist. Mm -hmm. And so these are always kind of going around in my head. I, I've always had a little bit of chicken little in my outlook. And it's been really weird to have these things feel like my, you know, my worst fears are coming true, but I haven't reconciled that. I had a really weird experience a few months ago where I had some occlusion in one of my ears and I went to get it checked out. And the doctor's like, well, there's a chance it's a tumor sitting in there. If it is, you know, there are these various, and I just, I went to Please. the like, Oh, I have a brain tumor. I'm going to die in a year or two. And the funny thing about it was I felt immediately. Okay. Like oh, it takes a lot of pressure off. I got to, I got to get my estate in order. I got to get rid of all the extra stuff. I don't want my kids to have to get rid, you know, get rid of. I know I want to do some, you know, I'll stop doing the things that don't make me happy for money. I'll do as much as I can, as long as I can, of the things that do make me happy. I won't worry about money. And 
it was almost unnerving that at this age I, I went so easily into yeah. like, oh, just total relief. But it, cause it was going to be really simple. And I'm like, I know the people I love so many people and I just like it. I mean, my life for what, you know, I, I can complain about, you know, home or, you know, that I sabotaged my career or this and that. The fact of my life is that I have, I am rich in the people I love and that love me and that I, of any of the things that I might change in my life, I wouldn't be anybody else because I love my friends more than life itself. Like, and, and I have a cornucopia, like I have too many people I love deeply to even give them the, what they're worth. Like it's the greatest. And I should feel that because of my social capital, like I'll be okay. You know, I'm not going to starve in the streets, but I guess I would like to get myself. I, I've talked about this before it shows like, man, the, the people I know who lived through cancer have the best attitude because they face death and now every day's bonus for them. Right. And they mm-hmm. love their, they love living <laughs> and they are not sweating the small stuff. And it's like, so how do you get I'm trying the to, cancer that, attitude that without the what cancer? What I'm trying to figure out as well. <laughs> well, and which is why I've put more, I mean, the, the, one of the hardest things for me about COVID is that it made community singing a really, it, it it made community singing, you know, this kind of antisocial yeah, behavior, you know, yeah. right? Standing in a circle and spitting at each other forcibly. You, you know, it's still, I did a few, I did like three sessions right before Delta hit and then had to shut it down again and then went on tour. And so, and once again, within that group of people, I'm dealing with, it's a lot of people in their 50s, 60s, 70s. So it's a, mm-hmm. a community of people who are more at risk and there's some anti-vax people. There's some people who are hyper conservative and concerned and wouldn't, you know, and trying to thread the needle of everybody's comfort and needs. I'm just taking a little more of a break from it right now, but, you know, doing things that are giving back and helping people wake up and keeping my input, you know, the books I read, the things I'm curious about, like keeping those positive. Once again, Tara Brock, if you ever get to listen to her, she's, yeah, she's really wonderful. (laughs) And, you know, in reading, in thinking about David White, the poet, he has, he's, yeah, but, He's trying to think how to describe him. He has a a book called Consolations. He writes a lot of poetry, but he has a book called Consolations that's all on uh, commonly used words and kind of deeper understandings of them. And there's one on anger that is one of the best things I've ever read, which talks about, says anger is the deepest form of compassion. Yeah. (laughs) Which sounds weird at the beginning, right? But that when when stripped of its initial flush of violence and ferocity, anger tells us what we care most about and are most passionately willing right. to defend. Right? Anger is when something threatens the thing that you will never allow to be threatened. And so to take 
that part, not just the, not the fury at what threat, what the threat is, but to understand it's like your anger will tell you what you love. And, and just to look at it that way. Right. And even to look at, you know, grief and loss. Martin Prachtel is like a teacher who wrote a book called The Smell of Rain on Dust, all about grief and talking about basically how Westerners are really not good at grief. And he talks about how in the Mayan language, grief and praise are the same word. And that uh, the Mayan concept of grief and praise is that they're both love plus time and loss. And so that grief is praising what you love and have lost, but praise is grieving what you love and will lose. So, and just this idea through that, and like my way of expressing it would be, it's like with grief, you, you cry for what you love mm-hmm. and that everything you love changes or passes. And that, so grief, we have this attitude of it's something you stuff in, you don't express, you, you know, and that it, like your tears are bad, but like, for me, it's like, oh, it's a symptom of love. It's a symptom of having things, you know, and, you know, David White will talk about, you know, with grief, you know, your children just growing old and moving away from you breaks your heart. Like heartbreak <laughs> is, is a sign that, that you're functioning. <laughs> and so to be alive in this world right now and not be constantly heartbroken for me is like, the saddest possible thing. It, it means that you're not, means that you've walled yourself off so you won't get hurt. And if you are in this world right now and you were constantly heartbroken, you're doing a it's great hard job. hard to hear. <laughs> like you're, uh, right. you're paying right. attention right. and you haven't yeah, stopped. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. <laughs> that is difficult to hear a little bit because it's sort of like then you always find yourself in this weird space between being thrilled and being in pain all the time. Yeah. And so then your next job with that, and sometimes you need to rest and sometimes you need to hide and you need to make some popcorn and watch Netflix and regather your strength or whatever your method is. And, and sometimes you need to build your capacity to feel. And, and that's the other part of it. And the, the work, like when I, you know, and I'm not, won't go into it, but like, Plant medicine work for me, which I found right around the same time of my divorce, taught me about expanding my capacity to feel. And, and there are a lot of paths to that. Once again, I think it's easy to be, and it's so trendy now, and you know, people go on and on about, there is you know, mindfulness meditation. There are, there are so many ways in which to go about this process. But for me, that was the one that set the, where a light bulb went off and was like, I need to be able not to shut down or just select the good feelings, but I need to grow my capacity. And if you read, you know, whether it's, you know, Gandhi or Thich Nhat Hanh, lot, and, like the research. life of Thich Nhat Hanh. Have you read Thich Nhat Hanh at all? Buddhist teacher, grew up in Vietnam. Like he's, oh God. He speaks in almost childlike language, but he's so fucking profound. And, you know, he went through the Vietnam War and he was, he's been doing work where 
you know, he had both like the communists and the Westerners, like both thinking he was working for the other. And he's just like, I'm just trying to help people. I'm going to help anyone. I'm feeding people. I'm taking care right. of people. And if you have a problem with who I take care of, screw you. I'm taking care of people. And if that makes me your enemy, it's really your issue. And like his level of compassion and bravery and strength is unbelievable. He has a poem called Call Me By My True Names. It's just like, God damn, his poems are good. And he suffered for them and, 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 and managed to walk out with immense capacity and capacity that took a ton of work, a ton of deciding to shut many things out in order to, you know, uh, create a deeper capacity, meaning, you know, he was a monk, you know, not married and even talking about sexual infidelity. It's like, well, yeah, there's the morals of this, but the reason we also say to do this is, right. Uh, right. You got to be focused on better things than, than, than screwing right. around. Like if you're worried right. about getting laid all the time, you're not feeding people and it's better to feed people. And he's just like, come on, you don't have priorities. And so he's, you know, with any of these better teachers, it, it, it's like, and, and I do tilt towards the Buddhist. I wouldn't say I am a Buddhist, but I would sure. say my philosophical underpinnings are, are much more in that direction. But that that idea of building your own capacity to feel and to contain, I think is is the only way not to shut down and to understand that you will have more joy and you will have more pain, you will have more sadness, and that you'll be able to more cleanly move through those things. I mean, one of the things that I aspire to do in the next few years, that once again, the path I was on that kind of got shut down by COVID, one of the most profound experiences I've ever had was a grief ceremony, where there's some talking and there's some kind of you know preparation, but the, the core of this thing is it's this like 45 second song that, you know, you get about 30 people in a room and you sing this song and you're drumming and singing f for three to five hours, one song nonstop. And you go kind of deep. And when, and a few people who've done it before go to the altar first, like raise a hand when you go to, and this, this came out of Francis Weller had similar teachers, but Sabamfu and Samale were the two main teachers who were apparently told by their elders that white people were crazy because they didn't know how to grieve. So go to America and teach white people how to grieve. And so it's, it's this process where you're singing or you're wailing. And when you go to the altar, somebody's standing there witnessing you behind you. And if you need them to touch your back, if you need them to be there closer, they can be there or to hold, but they're there to witness. And you weep and wail for as long as you need. And when you're done, you walk back in and people in the, in the, in the village, in the circle, and the singers say, thank you. And, and then you start singing. <laughs> and and you're part of it again. And so there's no opportunity awesome. for an individual to take up too much space or over narrate. And you don't even know why it's moving through you, but you're held 
you're able to be that person, you know, for me, the person who was told he had to act like a human being and just let every single bit of tears come out of you and then go support others while they do immediately after you're back in a support role and it's a seamless transition. And, and like, like I said, I'm a hippie. These are the, that's my idea of a party. Like that's my idea of like the best possible hey. night is singing and wailing and drumming for four hours. And you go through it and you're closer to all these people and you didn't have to tell everybody every thought. You just got to be there for them and know that whatever they're feeling is what they're feeling. That's all you need to know. Because, and, and you know, in a group like that, you get, you get people who've lost their, their child. You get people who lost their parents. You get people, there is, there is in this setup, there's, I think the, the Francis Weller book on this work is called The Wild Country of Grief. Something to that effect. But it's, you know, you are, there's a, a primary altar that is the, the grief altar. There's an anger altar for people who've been abused. There's an ancestral altar and there's a forgiveness altar. And anyone can kind of move freely between these. And you can go anc ancestry and, and forgiveness are ones you go to by yourself. You're not witnessed on those. But I want to lead that work. <laughs> I mean, that it, to me, that's like people allowing themselves to go in that place. I just think it expands your capacity to hold what you feel, expands your capacity to understand that everyone's carrying a heavy load, right? There's one of Lawrence Cole's songs in this is, you know, be, be kind, everyone carries a heavy load. And just to, to get that is like the baseline. And then through that perspective, at least for me, that's how... That's like the revolution that I, I want to help be a part of is the revolution of the heart where it's like not, uh, you can still go in the streets, you can still, but, but that you're driven by compassion instead of anger. I've been thinking a lot about this conversation and not just because I've been editing it to post. Glenn raises a lot of valid points about having to interact with people who have different and who have different social and political views than us. Personally, a lot of people on the right side of the political spectrum have views that take issue with my humanity, so it's incredibly difficult to find common ground. And I don't really recommend attempting to find common ground with people who would deny your right to exist or exist equally. That takes a level of kindness and grace that I think I might be incapable of. However, I think those of us that are capable of reaching across the divide and finding common ground should try to do so. It's important to have allies, and allyship, I think, is pivotal when it comes to getting people to change their thoughts about certain things. Uh, exposure can certainly change minds, and I think it might be easier, or at least less mentally taxing, for people like Glenn, who happens to be white and straight identifying, to work across these differences than it would for me. At any rate, this was a great conversation. I want to thank Glenn for offering his time and wisdom. I also want to wish Glenn a happy birthday. He celebrated his birthday recently. Uh, I have been a fan of Toad the Wet Sprocket since I was a teenager, as you know if you've listened to the beginning of this episode, and it was a thrill to talk to him again. Uh, you can find him at glennphillips.com and at glennphillips, his name, on Twitter and Instagram. Also, make sure you check out Starting Now, the album Toad the Wet Sprocket, released in the fall of 2021. It's a good one. Thanks again, Glenn. 
Thanks for listening to the Detoxicity Podcast. My name is Mike Joseph. Once again, if you want to find me online, hit me up on Instagram at DetoxPodGuy. I'm on Twitter intermittently at TizMikeJoseph. You can go to Facebook.com slash Detoxicity. You can email me detoxpod at gmail.com love to hear constructive criticism love to hear feedback would love if you are a potential guest or you know somebody who you think would be a potential guest please by all means reach out to me and remember if you enjoy this podcast subscribe rate comment do all of the things necessary to push this podcast up in the podcast rankings and get this into as many ears as possible tell a friend do whatever it is you need to do And uh, thank you once again for listening. I personally want to thank the following people for their support. Uh, Calvin Williams and Jacob Block, Jeff Giles, and Andrew Grossman. Thank you very much. I hope all of you stay well, stay safe, and healthy. Until next time.